Welcome to Intimacy Choreography in Conversation, where Anne James and Carly D. Weckstein talk candidly about the growing world of intimacy choreography and shifting performance art spaces toward a culture of consent. Intimacy choreography is the craft of designing moments of staged intimacy or sexual violence with respect, clarity, and professionalism. Intimacy choreographers respect the boundaries, integrity, and needs of the actors involved so that the best work can happen enthusiastically. This podcast was inspired by our conversation around intimacy direction in the time of COVID-19 as a part of the Director's Lab West Connects that was streamed on HowlRound in May 2020. There were multiple pages of questions remaining after that initial conversation, so we decided that instead of writing out the answers to every question in a pamphlet, we would start a podcast to have engaging discussions on various themes that come up around intimacy choreography. All these questions came from real theater artists like you around the world. We acknowledge the Tongva peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land we currently reside on and are recording this podcast on. That is the Los Angeles Basin and the South Channel Islands. We seek to honor the land and the courageous people who are its past, present, and future stewards, modeling a tradition of resistance seeking liberation. Hey guys. Before you dive into this amazing episode with Dr. Val, please note that there are a few audio indiscretions that we couldn't get rid of in editing. We appreciate your patience so much. And now here's the interview. On episode four, we're going to talk about people of color in intimacy choreography. And I have the distinct pleasure of introducing our first guest artist. Uh, Valerie Curtis Newton. Yay. Yay. <laughs> uh, Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome, Val. Um, before we begin, I want to give our listeners an idea of what you have done, not who you are, but certainly what you have done and what you have accomplished. So please indulge me for one second. Valerie is currently the head of directing at the University of Washington School of Drama. Valerie also serves as the artistic director for the Hansberry Project, an African-American theater lab. She has worked with theaters across the country, including the Guthrie Theater, Seattle Repertory Theater, the Intamin Theater, Actors Theater of Louisville, Alabama Shakes, Seattle Children's Theater, the Mark Taper Forum, New York Theater Workshop, among others. She's been awarded the National Endowment of the Arts Theater Communications Group Career Development Grant for Directors, the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation's Gilgood Directing Fellowship, Theater Puget Sound's Gregory Fall Award for Sustained Achievement, Seattle's the Seattle Times' 13 Most Influential Citizens of the Last Decade, the Seattle Stranger Genius Award in Performance, and the Crosscut Courage Award for Culture. So that is a bevy of awards. Uh, okay, where do you, Val, where do you keep your awards? Do you, are you that person that <laughs> has like a shrine or they, are they dotted around your home? Uh, actually, my wife requires that they all go in my office. <laughs> 
Hey, happy wife. Happy, <laughs> happy life. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So uh, we have so many questions for you. Um, I just want to say that um, uh, Carly is with us here in spirit. She's actually in the room, but she is uh, letting me take the lead on this. Um, and I appreciate that affinity space. So Carly is near and dear and uh, giving us this space to have this chat. Um, before we begin, do you, uh, want to share your land acknowledgement? Where are you interviewing from? Sure. I'm happy to acknowledge that I, that I reside on and do my work on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish tribe. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. We respect their stewardship, stewardship, excuse me. And that's in Seattle. Yeah. And in Seattle, also known as Seattle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so bef- before we begin deeply into these questions, um, can you tell us a little bit about the Hansberry Project? Yeah, the Hansberry Project started because um, I wanted to be able to do work and to do it in in my own hometown. You know, at, at the time when the Hansberry Project started, according to the census, Seattle was the fifth widest large city in the country. And I basically make black plays. So I didn't know how I would be able to continue to do my work. And then um, I was approached by Kurt Beatty from a contemporary theater. And he invited me to use his theater as an incubator to start the Hansberry Project. And we began doing uh, work, basically a production in their season every year. And then we were able to use that as the anchor to make ancillary projects to further engage the community. And uh, my idea was I wanted to be able to make work for that represented the black community on the same level as all the other um, equity level work in in our city. So we started that in uh, 2005 and then our first production was in 2006. And we were there for six years. And then we went out on our own. And now we're the Hansberry Project all around Seattle. We make co-production collaborations with different theater companies. Um, our, our mission is to celebrate, support, and present the work of Black theater artists. And we do that mostly through collaborations, but we also do it through uh, micro-grants to individual artists. So. If and for example, if you were had something you really wanted to produce, and you needed uh, fifteen hundred dollars to rent the space, Hansberry would do that. Or if you were working with a theater company, and they wanted to do your work but they didn't quite have all the money, we might give that theater company a kind of a bridge loan or a bridge grant to help them hire you at a living wage. So. Uh, we, we sort of take a lot of different forms, but the main thing is to have black people working and to have them paid for their work. Oh, that is amazing. Thank you so much for that groundbreaking idea. I mean, it's so innovative and, and so forward thinking and uh, so embracing of black art. I really appreciate that. Um, that's wonderful. And I might hit you up for some funds. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> um, 
All right. So, uh, what? Amen. Right. That's amen. the amen corner. Amen. All right. Amen. Amen. Corner. Corner. But I will, so I can respond quicker. Okay. All right. So, um, what is a piece that you directed early on in your career that helped shape you as a, well, I was going to say director, but seems as though you're you're a facilitator of black theater. Can you remember a show particularly that you got that epiphany or that aha moment of I I can do more. I am Val Curtis Newton. <laughs> I um I was really really blessed when I got out of undergraduate school. My aunt said to me, "There are these artists working actors working out of this church in the north end of Hartford, where I'm from. And they're called the Operation Push Performing Ensemble. And they, they began as part of Operation Push, and then they started doing projects in a church fellowship hall in a black part of town, which is the north end. And, uh, and I went there, and I started working with them when I was 22 years old. And um, they made... Uh, Every year they made a production and then in between we would tour. We would develop choreo poem pieces where we would make collages of poetry by black uh, poets and tour them to the schools to tell black history and culture. So uh, then they did this uh, comedy that I didn't, I didn't really take well to. It was very satirical and I decided I wasn't the one. And, uh, they said, well, so what would you do instead? And I brought them uh, Alice Childress's Wine in the Wilderness. Okay. And I said, this is a piece that I could do, that I could see us doing and holding our heads up at, when we finished. And so we made that play with no money, really. And when they finished, these people who were my elders, they said, oh, now we see what you, what you want to do. And they affirmed that. And and uh, made opportunities for me to, to pick work and to do work and to create some of the choreo poem pieces and then to direct more and more. So they helped me move from being an actor to being a director, from being primarily the talent to being the producer. And I did that with them for basically 11 years until I decided to come to graduate school. So, but that moment of recognizing that I wanted to make work that said certain things about black folks. And that was uh, at that point, unconcerned about white gays. And also that I wanted the work to reflect community and to speak to community. It was sort of seated right then. That's wonderful. It just kind of um, grew organically through you um, by opportunity. And I cannot move on in this interview without acknowledging that, Val is one of the most well-respected directors in not only the academic community, but certainly uh, from the people that I know and have met um, in the various groups that I belong to. You are revered and your yeah. work and your, your ability to... Uh, hold a hand out and bring young artists forward and into the light is truly remarkable. So it sounds like someone did that for you. And then that exactly. uh, became a part of your DNA as an artist. And I am so grateful for them for doing that and showing you. Amen. That as, you I, as am I. 
as am I. I mean, that, that I had models for giving a younger person an opportunity and then affirming the work that they do. Like, I don't need anybody else to do what I do. I need to help them do what they do. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, we appreciate it. Um, okay, so let's just dive into these questions really quickly. Uh, uh, this first question is actually the question that came up in the feed written by you, I believe <laughs> the question is. So <laughs> let's just start off with that question. Um, it reads, inviting an ID into the rehearsal room. Okay, this is what we were talking about at the time. So Val says, as a queer woman of color who rarely gets to direct the not black play, I'm not so comfortable with power sharing some of the most powerful moments in the play with a largely white female pool of intimacy choreographers. That is why Anne's interest in expanding the pool is so important. This is where my concerns about intersectionality spring from. As a person of color, queer director, not to acknowledge that and to be asked to power share with the largely white female intimacy choreographer cohort, it does not make the room feel safe for me. Um, let's talk about that. That was such an eloquent uh, question. And I read it re- in real time and went, ooh, and then some <laughs> people were answering and trying to jump in. And so tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, you know, right now, the way that uh, intimacy choreography is introduced to directors is this question of what it is to share power with the actors. And that we need to have a sort of moderator arbitrator to make the room safe for them. And I was tremendously offended by the notion that in any room I'm in, that I have too much power. So I was like, so so let's talk about this in an intersectional way. The 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 moments of intimacy almost always happen. At the climactic moment of the play, the introduction of an intimacy choreographer or director, it says to me that the, the most important moment that everything that I've been working for comes to is then arbitrated or mediated by someone who is not me, who is not responsible for the whole vision. But just gets this is going to sound really petty, but it sounds like they just get to direct juicy parts. Mm. They don't have to actually mount the momentum for the rising action. They don't have to land the denouement of the play. Mm. I have to do all that, but they get to to stage where the heat is. Right, and that the the rest of your direction is based on what they've set in place. Exactly. Mm. And I'm also, I also struggle a lot with this idea that in a way the actors can, can move the boundary at every rehearsal. Right. Yeah. Where's, where's the moment where, where the thing is set or at least the boundary is set. So those, those are my two big issues with the concept of intimacy choreography. I, I prefer that I get the training 
myself and that directors are trained in that way because I run a director a director training program. I can do that. Mm. Um, I can make sure that the people coming through my program are exposed to what the culture of consent is, and then that they get the practical skills of staging a kiss or staging simulated sex or staging a slap or a fight. I already do that. They already get fight choreography training. They get certified. So I'm just, I'm, I'm struggling with the idea of the, the need for intimacy choreography mm-hmm. and why as more women and more people of color are getting the call to lead, that now is the time that everybody wants power sharing. When we finally get the power. Mm-hmm. I understand exactly what what you're saying because I, you know, I recently read, well, I guess it was a couple of months ago, I read um, this article about this theater company. And I think I brought it up with you, Val, or commented on on something. You may have posted it where this uh, theater company had decided instead of to have one artistic director, they decided to split the job between three artistic directors. And those artistic directors, they all seem to be people of color. And their salaries were the salary of that one white man was divided amongst them mm-hmm. and they had to do a power share. And I just thought that that was really offensive. And, and, you know, as the walls of these PWIs come down, technically, I guess they're kind of, <laughs> new, you know, um, they are completely uh they're altering the financial structure uh and and cheapening the job of the artistic direction of a theater company and also diffusing it um that they're diffusing the power exactly what you're talking about in the rehearsal room when you have uh, an intimacy director especially one who you don't have that doesn't look like you yeah right uh that comes in in that power position and you know like you you so so wisely said you know hey who's the boss here damn it and Mm -hmm. uh specifically in work by black artists black black writers um there there is an issue there um I also understand uh, that, you know, uh, as a director who teaches directors, that you are exactly uh, right to to say, hey, teach me how to teach directors and I will deliver that information so that directors in the room uh, of color specifically are well versed in that training so that they don't have to become don't have to have uh, this quote unquote overseeing by a white person, Um, which is the majority of intimacy directors and choreographers to date. Yeah. Uh, You know, so I, I mean, I feel, you know, there is an organization TIE theater uh, intimacy educators that, does training they provide training for directors and uh people in academia who are 
having to navigate intimacy on their own, well, whether it be uh, ideological belief in the leadership of the of the university about intimacy direction, or if it's a financial situation for the university, um, you know the the hurdles that academia has to jump in order to just hire someone. I mean, it could be daunting um, for those workshops. So I applaud your idea that if we train leadership in direction about intimacy and how to stage that intimacy, that until we can have a representative um, swath of intimacy directors that is intersectional, then we should be training uh, directors of color to do that within their own um, communities. Um, I think that uh, another another um, another aspect of this is figuring out how the idea of an intimacy choreographer is communicated to a director. Hmm. Talk right? about that. because because mm, many theaters now, like HBO and like TV, are requiring them. They're requiring intimacy choreographers. Right. It's, it's not even about our having a conversation about my level of comfort or training. It's like, no, it needs to not be the director. Yeah, I, I know. That, it, that, it's that mentality is, is problematic. It is. It's problematic. Uh, so there that and this happens, you know, at the beginning stage of the production. The producers essentially telling me. I don't trust you to direct the most important moment in this play by yourself. So we need a team of people to make the climax of this play. Yeah, that's, 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 not, that's the subtext. No, that is, I think that is a very uh, astute perception in a way. Um, while I am resolute to bring more people of color and more intersectionality and inclusion into this very new field. I also am a director first. I'm a stage director for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, this intrusion on my craft uh, causes, causes a little bit of imbalance. And that's why I want those communication lines to be open. I want them to be open instead of just, just like you said, slapping um, this this requirement um, onto production that you must have this person. Well, what kind of capacity does that person play? What is their role? I think that that is all still mutable and malleable information. And before it gets solidified and cemented in, I think that people of color should be in that conversation. Yes. Well, and the, the theaters, I, I understand that they are so um, hungry for some support to help them avoid the landmines mm -hmm. of uh, violating consent. Mm -hmm. that they have they're so happy to have a tool but i do think it gets wielded sort of indiscriminately in in error of trying to err on the side of caution uh that 
there's no, I don't feel like directors have the real opportunity to have a conversation. Like for every time there's a fight that's necessary, uh, uh, the theaters ask me, uh, do I, do I need a fight choreographer? And, and I do when it's a thing that's bigger than what I, what I've been trained to handle. If it was broadswords, absolutely. Right. Most hand-to-hand stuff, most hand-to-hand things, uh, given my experience at this point in time, I can stage a fist fight. Right? Right. So, but that conversation around sexual uh, intimacy is less consistent. There's an assumption somehow that I can't make a safe room for actors. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's problematic, I think. Yeah, it is problematic. Uh, especially since sometimes it's such a knee jerk reaction. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's dig a little deeper now. What does inter? Okay. First of all, what is your definition of intersectionality? What do you, what does intersectionality mean for Val? Yeah, I think that it is there that I have a lot of identities mm-hmm. and that they 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 do overlap. The ways in which I have privilege and the ways in which I have bias overlap. The idea that I'm a queer person, as well as being a black person, as well as being a female person, I have learned a lot about how to navigate the systems of oppression affecting those three identities. And if we don't consider them or talk about them, and the the rules for the most, I don't know what the right word is, free people, Mm -hmm. primarily uh, uh, upper-class white heterosexual men, if those same rules are applied to me without recognition of the fact that I don't have access to the same privileges, we're we're bumping up against the boundaries of intersectionality. Right, right. It becomes um, something that needs to be addressed. And specifically with, you know, if, if I'm asking Val for her consent or what Val's boundaries are, what part of your intersectionality are, are am I talking to? It depends on the material. Mm, yeah. If we're if we're if we're working on a, a colorblind cast of a classic play, right? Mm-hmm. It it might be about how I translate my blackness to fit into this world. Yeah. And so then at the climax of the play, when the white man hits me. Mm. That's a, that's a special conversation to have. Yeah, it's not only about his power as a a man, but it's also about his power as a white man. And and the the impact of rehearsing that for five hours a day is a conversation. Yeah, right, Damn right. <laughs> and if if it if the play is a black play and the person who hits my character is a black man it's a, it's a it's still a conversation around gender but it's a different conversation right and is that man identify is he straight or is he gay is he 
you know, is he older? Is he younger? I mean, all these things I think would come into play. Yes. And when I'm directing, I talk about all of them because I want the most honest, I want every actor to actually be able to bring themselves into the process. Yeah. I want you as a black woman to be a black woman in the room. Even though we might be translating a, a classic European white play. I want, if you're in the room, I want you to be in the room. I really like what you say about bringing your whole self into the room. Um, I know that uh, working with young actors and young directors, that if we could have a little bit more of that and a little less um, reverence to the established, privileged, white, male way of doing things, that our industry and our craft will be better. Uh, what, What say you, Val, about that? Yeah, I think that there is nothing as potent as a live human being being alive and human. Right? Yeah. And so if we continue to pretend that we don't have human reactions or foibles or uh, um, that we're not flawed, then we're screwing up because it's the flawed part of us that's the most interesting to watch. I agree. I not agree more. Yeah. So I think that, that in, in having conversations, particularly with young artists, I do my best to say, start with you. Just start with you. Mm-hmm. Which is why I say, just get off book. Yeah. Get off book so you can just be yourself in the room. And uh, uh, the more that, people want to do extra the less uh the less compelling the work is so just show up and uh be alive in the moment right and let the character just kind of emerge emerge yeah and i I think that you know for lack of a, a different example i think the the magic if of stanislavski mm-hmm is incredible. What if I were in these given circumstances? What would I do? What would I be capable of? And I, you know, I think that if I were homeless and uh, and had the chance to steal a million dollars or to steal twenty dollars of a tip off the table in a in a restaurant, I would do that. I can't say I would never. Right. If I, if I was hungry enough, I would. So really uh, uh, dig, digging deep into given circumstances and applying the magic if is fundamental, I think, for particularly young artists starting out. You don't have to do a ton. Just be honest, which is the bravest act of all. I hear that. I hear that. Oh, my God. I wish I would have had you as a DJ. Okay. <laughs> Um, all right. So what you talked about what we can tell young people, um, this next question has to do with black folks or, or BIPOC folks and white folks. Like, how are we 
moving toward those people in power in PWIs and in universities. How are we going to uh, ask them to empower and uplift more people of color into the leadership? Um, and and specifically into the leadership of of the intimacy field, but of course you can talk about what you what what inspires you about having that conversation with the white folks and the black folks in the room in order to improve the theater world as a whole. Yeah, I I I don't know a lot about the intimacy conversation and, and how that how that goes, but I would say that honesty, we have to be brave enough to be honest with each other. Yeah. You know, like now we're, we're writing 31 page documents <laughs> and we're, you know, in Seattle, they, we drafted something like 40 demands from the theater artist community. Mm-hmm. And I find myself generationally feeling a little bit out of step. Mm-hmm. I'm like, do we need to to be in this place right now? What would happen if you just actually said, these are my boundaries. Right. And I'm not working with you, XYZ Theater, until you clean up your act. If your board people are going to say racist crap to me, I'm not going to be around them. If your staff is is going to allow racist crap to happen to me, I'm not going to work with you. Right. So I just feel like, and, and then, and also know that they're going to make mistakes. They're going to get it wrong. Their first instinct, their intention is probably really good. And their first instinct is really good, but they really suck at figuring out what the impact is going to be. Well, it's uncharted water, isn't it? I mean, exactly. You know, none of us are perfect. And, you know, Carly and I, um, last episode, we, we were talking in depth about, you know, look, people are going to fuck up. Like this is, this is, we're in the scrying bowl of change right now. And if people are too scared to step out and make a mistake, nothing will ever change. While people have to be accountable, they also have to, you know, be kinder to themselves and say, Hey, look, this is a system that we've all grown up in. This is a system that is wrong. And in order to learn how to ride a bike, you got to fall off the damn bike a lot. Yes. Yeah. But if you never one. get your ass on the bike, then what do you gain? Yes. I think I'm also the other component of being um, general generationally where I am mm-hmm. is also I'm, I'm interested both in improving the existing system and also empowering the the system that has been um, starved, right? I want want the money inside PWI. I don't want that job. (laughs) Right? Like, cut me a damn check. I know what to do. Just let me do it. Yeah, I don't don't want to run one of those organizations because Mm. what's going to happen is what's happening to folks right now. They were invited in to lead organizations that Mm -hmm. have the same board and the same donors that they had when they had white leadership, white male leadership. It's a disaster. And, you know, someone's got to make that change. Fix it. If you want to have black leadership of the 
PWI institution in your city, you have to actually make a plan to ready the institution for them. Mm, to invite that. them to, to do that work is actually, that's, that's no solution. That's, that's starting us back uh, uh, not on the same footing that you started on. Right. I mean, we, we already know, you know, in, in my career, I've been in a lot of education divisions of regional theater and in the EDI, in that education position, that's great. That's usually where the people of color, the female people of color go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're the face of, oh, look how diverse we are, la, la, la. The next step is the the person who is is crowned the EDI person, this um, equity, diversity, inclusion person. And it is usually, again, a woman of color. And what happens is the institution gets the money to hire the person for probably 40000 a year, which is nothing. That mm-hmm. person, blood, sweat, and tears come from that person in order to build a community. The person gets burned out, the funding drops, they get fired, and then we start the cycle over and over again. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, when we're talking about someone who is attached to that division as a board member, that board member is often a white lady gen- in general who probably has no connection not only to the individual she is trying to help or to she's been deemed to assist or help develop a, a division, but also she's not in touch with the community and has never been in touch with the, with the BIPOC community in, in her town. So it's kind of like lady or sir on the board, step out of your comfort zone and go get you know, go to the bodega or go get a, go get a, <laughs> an ice cream or something in the neighborhood, go to the school, you know, hang yeah. out on the playground and like learn the people who you're supposed to help. And until that happens, ain't nothing going to happen. And it's going to keep burning, burning generally, uh, sisters out, just burning them out. You know, Lauren yeah. Turner talks about that. She wrote a wonderful article. Um, she's down in Louisiana. Hey, Lauren Turner, if you're listening, um, uh, about that burnout, you know, and how it can be actually physically damaging to bear the weight of that in these white, com- in these white institutions. Yeah, it's a, uh, I'm, I'm formulating in my brain, like really, what is it? What would it mean? You know, we talk about defund the police. Mm-hmm. What if we figured out a, a better, less a less assertive term for what we want to have happen to the PWI institutions. So if, for example, if, for example, somebody was making six productions a year and they cut back one of those productions and the resources from one of those productions went out into the community in whatever form it goes out into, maybe it's a foundation is formed. Or maybe there are a lot of ethnically specific organizations who could live off that money. But, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars for a Lord Theater production. I know. Right? Yeah, I've seen costume budgets alone that are, you know, 30 grand, 35 grand. Yes. So the question is, how do we get the money where it needs to be? Mm. Because ethnically specific 
particularly black organizations, are both underfunded and undercapitalized. So what happens is you get someone like me starting an organization like the Hansbury Project. Once we stopped being a part of ACT Theater, uh, all the infrastructure went away. Who's the, who's the marketing person? Right. It's me and my volunteers. Who's the fundraising person? Me and my volunteers. Uh, and I'm like one of probably maybe up to 20 black producers in my, in my city. Mm-hmm. We're making work. We're making work happen. But we're doing it on shoestrings with no infrastructure. And just think about what you said, what you're, what you are proposing, Val Genius, is that Seattle Rep, for example, multi-million dollar regional theater. Am I correct? Yes. They take of the ten shows that they do, probably eleven. I mean, I mean you know, in the ten range, eight to ten. Take one of those shows, the money from one of those shows, and disperse it throughout the community theaters and the smaller equity houses in the city. Am I getting that right? Yes. That's brilliant. Let's do that. <laughs> well, I think that we will be having a different conversation if we, if we didn't have to go through Corona. <sighs> yeah. Because right now, all of them are laying people off and they're struggling people. Right. So it's really hard to ask them for more money or to cut back. But we have to be getting to funders, foundations, and donors to say, you know, whatever you're giving to them, consider giving 10% of that amount to an ethically specific theater. At least it's a start. Yeah. Like, at least that's a start. Yeah. You know, I used to say, you know, I've, I've, I've had small theater companies, uh, and, you know, I used to say, yeah, we can do the set out of a paper clip and a piece of paper. Like, we have made magic happen yes. with black paint, you know? Yes. Because we've had to do that. We, you know, we've had to do it. We couldn't rest our laurels on you know, bugle beads and, and a huge set and all this. So our craft, I think at this level is probably more in tuned and developed. And then, you know, all we need is cash and we can create amazing productions because the creativity is already set in place. (laughs) And, and we, so, and the other component is we have to convince black donors that the creation and sustaining of Black culture is as important a cause as literacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many uh, needs in our community that it's hard to get on the list. So many critical needs that it's hard to get culture on the list. It is. Yeah, exactly. There's like homelessness and... Restorative justice. It's like all that stuff. Right. Right. I mean, it's got to start somewhere. We got to start somewhere. And yeah, it's going to seem daunting. Um, I'm going to ask you uh, about, you know, we have, we have brothers and sisters, uh, 
Black people, Indigenous peoples, and peoples of color, we're all kind of moving toward recognizing one another and turning our minorities into a majority. How do you yeah. think, yeah, how do you think all these ethnicities getting together uh, can help to create safe space um, that inspires for POC? How can we use this time to come together, recognize one another, and then catapult ourselves and the the members in business, members in, you know, in our judicial system, members of, of, of our societies, how can we come together and and create safe spaces for artists to thrive? I'm gonna maybe try to adjust terms. Because I don't actually believe in safe space. Okay. I would I would want for us to create a brave space. Mm. Love it. Yeah. Because um because we're not going to be safe in change. Well, that's proving itself to be true. Yeah, we don't know the outcome of change, and yet we know we need to change, and the only thing we can do is to be brave and go forward. It's like you know the old folks say. That there's nowhere in the Bible that God told anybody to go back. <laughs> it's true. God never said go back. Go forth. That's the order over and over again. Go forth and multiply. Go forth and you know, like, go forth. Yeah. So how do we make our communities brave enough? How do we make our individual artists brave enough that they can and will speak truth to power? Amen. That's the that's the brain, that's the mindset that I want to cultivate in the young people I work with. I don't care if they uh if the if the white people are upset by the thing you're doing. If are you telling the truth? Are you willing to to have another take another 6 months of them maybe not working with you in order to tell the truth? Or are you afraid uh, that they'll never hire you? You know, there's a, I, I use this example and Hazel might remember it, but you know, when Oprah Winfrey started her network, she said she was terrified and uh, she had a deadline to make the decision and uh, she didn't know what to do. And she went to sleep and, you know, she says that she prays every night. She prayed for some clarity and she woke up. She said she heard this little voice inside her and it said, what will I do if I were not afraid? Mm. I want to cultivate that space. Yes. The space that, is- that says, what would I do if I were not afraid? It doesn't mean that I'm safe. It means I w- I'm not afraid of the consequences. Not that there are no consequences. And I feel like right now we are cultivating a culture that is translating safety into the absence of consequences. You know, John Lewis just died. Mm. The man got his head cracked in the March for Freedom. He went to jail a ton of times in the March for Freedom. There's no safety in that. None. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, many of us don't have that, those big, super big challenges because he already did that work. We got a different field of engagement. And I want us to support each other in being brave in spaces. Not looking for safe space. I love that. 
I really do. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Val, you better come in here and drop a word on these people. <laughs> right, we've got Pastor Val in the room now. I mean, you know, like, listen with both ears over him. It's, mag- it's magnificent. I mean, I, I'm so moved by, by what you are laying down. It is just remarkable. It's, you know, I feel that this idea of bravery is something that we lack in this society. There's so much mediocrity. And that all goes back to T-ball and youth uh, baseball that no one can strike out. It was the beginning of the end. T-ball is the beginning of the end. Uh-oh. <laughs> We're about to get comments from the T-ball community. Oh. <laughs> I can take it. I can take it. That's a consequence. I'm all right. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm not in that brave space, Val. How can we create a brave space for me? <laughs> brave you know that space uh, T-ball. Uh, I'm not uh, ready my, for the my- T-ball moms and dads. <laughs> Maya Angelou uh, is quoted as saying that courage is the most important virtue because without it, you can't practice any of the others consistently. That is, that is fact. In fact. And that was, that's why courage is my, was my first tattoo. Oh, you got tattoos? Well, you like that? You got it like that? Okay. Yep. All right. Noted. Are you saying you don't have tattoos, Anne? Wow. Oh, I got a lot of tattoos. <laughs> um, I still have the bracelet that Val handed out in school that says, I'll never give up. Oh, that's my dad. That's what I live by. I'll never give up. Mm-hmm. That's what I live by. So, all right. I mean, I, you know, I'm moving through these questions and I'm just going to ask you, you know, they just all seem so small now. Um, but there are lovely questions <laughs> from our audience. Um, they're qu- they're questions about intimacy choreography, so you should no, you should, no, they're not yeah. actually. The, I, I mean, intimate settings, yes. How do you address gender and race and power imbalances in intimate settings? Um, okay, you know, if, if you're doing a, a, a play with two people, or if you're doing Tell me, tell me a little bit about your process. How about that? Tell me a little bit about, you know, how you navigate intimacy. If you have a scene, uh, what, it, what is your, what is your mode of direction? I begin talking about why the scene is in the play. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense of like, let's change it. Does it have to be this? Does it have to be that? But more in the sense of like, Getting from the beginning of the play to the end of the play on a particular arc, what's the spine of the play? Mm -hmm. And how does this moment play into the spine of the play? What's the dynamic of the conflict? Is it about power? Is it about passion? Is it about control? And then we have a conversation about literally about the physical person. Right. Like, what what are the places on your body that are out of bounds? What are the places that are acceptable to touch? Um, And when we're developing it in rehearsal, those are daily questions. 
and then uh, and then we we work accordingly, you know, uh, as specifically as possible. And I'm always checking in to ask if do do we want to adjust this? Does this want to change? Is there a better way to make the moment happen in the service of the story? No, that's sort of it in a nutshell. Well, I was going to I was going to address something um that you said earlier about one of the 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 stopgap moments for you as a director is the actor uh stopping the process not stopping the process during rehearsal but you know uh, one thing that has been um a body part that has been consensual you know the boundary is not there and then the boundary comes up uh and what what we do about that um and i wanted to you know kind of dive down deep into that uh about actors uh you know having the freedom to change their mind but also uh from the director's point of view of you know making sure that actors who have auditioned for the play know exactly what the play requires of them so you want to talk a little bit about that yeah i mean if there are uh moments of intimate touch in the script i would talk about them at the auditions I would say I haven't uh, worked out all the choreography for this, but Mm -hmm. my expectation is that it will probably require us to do some delicate work. And, uh, and there, there might, there may be nudity. And to the extent that I have decided that that's going to happen, I would tell them right away um, and find out if they're okay to make that exploration or not. Yeah, I totally respect an actor's decision not to participate because the work that we're going to do is outside their boundaries. Um, I, I would not ever blacklist somebody for that. Right. I, I appreciate the honesty. Uh, and I would try to be as upfront about it as possible, as early as possible. Um, and I think ultimately that the idea is... I I want people to say, you know, that's not okay with me. Right. I don't, I don't want them to, to be quiet. I want them to say that's not okay with me. And for us to check in every, every moment through the process, is this okay? Is that, will that work? Does, is it got you in your head? Is it like, what's going on? I I had a, 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 just a really simple, a kiss. And we had worked it out in a project. We had worked it out and uh, it was going to be like a three second kiss. And uh, one day in rehearsal, dude just grabbed her and really kissed her. Whoa. And I had to stop the room. And say, that is not okay. You violated her boundaries. You violated her consent. And now we have to go back and start that work all over again because the agreements are all off. Right. And I feel like that is my job. Oh, yeah. If, if, as, the power, as the power person in the room um, in that situation, if there isn't an ID there, it absolutely is your job. And if you, not you personally, Val, genius. I know. Yes. Directors. Yeah. If the director in the room is not taking that space, then the stage manager is next. Yes. And 
you know, and that stage manager has the right to kind of, you know, be that bystander uh, in in the space and and call a break or have water break or, you know, do what, you know, there are steps that that a bystander can take uh, in order to to shift that situation Mm -hmm. to something um, that is a little bit more boundary respectful. So, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, just kind of get your, get your feeling on that. Like when something is happening in the room um, that you can, you know, acknowledge and uh, then, then diffuse, which is great. I think, you know, as young directors out there listening, you know, take Val's advice. And, you know, if something ever happens, you, you have the right to, to step in and stop that. And you're right. That work has to start from the beginning, from scratch. Yeah. Um, do you, it's, think, a, it's essential. Yeah, it is essential. And it, and it respects, it respects the person, uh, whose boundaries have been violated. It respects them. Um, which is, doesn't happen. You know, I was just talking to someone about how we were trained when we came up and, you know, I'm 52. And so I came up during the AIDS crisis and, you know, I mean, everybody was like, uh, we have to break you down in order to build you up. Like that was, (laughs) that was the thing that the directors were doing at that point. And it was detrimental. And a lot of, um, good actors decided not to go into the business because, you know, their psyches had basically been shattered before they even had a chance to work professionally. So yes, directors have a lot of power and we should wield it for the good of all. Is, yes. Um, and, and I also really believe that programs should get people into therapy as quickly as they can. Yeah. I'm so glad Amen. Because one of the, one of the criteria, you know, um, for those of you listening, I have a company called Intimacy Coordinators of Color. And one of our benchmarks in our guideline is that in order to um, receive a qualification from ICOC, you must have a psych evaluation before you mm-hmm. start the work. And also every four, every three months, so quarterly, you have to do a psych check-in. Because I feel like doing this work and absorbing um, uh, the information that we are and working in these delicate, delicate areas of art, I think it's very important that we are intact and we are coming into the room whole. Um, I would say even whole plus one, uh, because we need to actually have uh, the capacity to hold space for things that might happen. And yes. so we had to be hyper aware of our psychological health and our mental health. So I'm so glad that you said that, Val. Talk, talk a little bit more about, about your beliefs in that. I think that, uh, that if I want you as an actor to, to come and bring your whole self, I want you to bring your, your whole healthy self. Yes, and so I I need to facilitate your getting healthy as best I can. And that's especially true for people of color, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who culturally who have who have some cultural barriers mm-hmm. to getting therapy, to getting assistance. You know, because it feels like if you get assistance, that that the oppressors are winning. Right, you're weak. Um, exactly. 
And I'm like, no, in order for us to heal, it's got to, we have to begin with ourselves. We have to heal. And then we have to heal our relationships within our communities. Yes. And then we have to be in a position to heal relationships between groups, across race, across gender, across sexual orientation, or there's no bringing the whole person into the room. Right. And then it's like, you know, an artist with a a palette of paints, but you only have six paint. You only have six colors. You know, we want to be able to come with a full palette of ability uh, with with many brushes and just come to our craft with everything possible um, without any dark corners or areas of uh, that we can't explore. And in order to do that, mental health is key. So. Absolutely. And the fact is that uh, that more likely than not, that when someone is not supported in their mental health, that that's the bomb that's going to blow up the cohort. Right. <laughs> um, Shut up, Hazel. Hazel. <laughs> I don't want to know about that, but I totally want to know about that. Um, okay. So, all right. So now we're okay, we're kind of winding up, and I just wanted to know. Oh. Don't mind me. I'm just over here shutting up. Is that right? <laughs> there was a plane. The plane just flew by right at the right time. It gave me an extra few seconds to think about what I'm going to ask Hazel later. Um, <laughs> just give her booze and she'll t- spill it all. Um, I am. I have decreased my booze intake, actually. Because why? Because because you would tell it all. That's why. Malika's not around anymore. <laughs> oh my god, I love Malika. Can we just give a special shout out to Malika because um, duh. amazing playwright. My my co goddaughter of Val. <laughs> Wait, can I can I add my own like personal thing? About sure. Val? <laughs> Sure. The the mental health thing, I absolutely co-sign. And Val, I still remember when I sat in your office, probably unsolicited, and um, you were like, you were asking me if I, if I was, I can't remember how you phrased it, but it was something about like, you know, did I feel comfortable um, addressing my depression or like, you know, getting it treated or getting help for my depression? And at the time I was like, but I don't want to, I don't want to not be an artist or something like that. Like I was afraid that, um, it meant that I wouldn't be able to do the work. And then, yeah. and then you said, well, um, it was something like, uh, I want to see, I want to see what that looks like. What, what a healthy you looks like. Yeah. yeah. And that really stuck with me. I did eventually go into therapy again because um, I'd avoided it after I'd avoided it like from my post college years because I felt like I was healthy enough. But yeah, being in school really brought up a lot of stuff. And your advice was very important for me to hear, even though I didn't act on it until later. But it definitely Mm -hmm. with, and like as I've gone through this journey with mental health, and especially finding um, therapists of color to work with, yeah, 
it's been huge for my art and I'm really grateful for where I am now as a as a human and also in the way that I approach the work. I'm I'm proud of you, Hazel. Thank you. Yeah. Happy for you and proud of you. Yeah. You brought me here. Well, I can't thank you and adore Hazel enough. So Whatever you have done to form this human being, I really, really appreciate it, Val. Well, I only beat her every other day. <laughs> and it's nice to have that day off. The break <laughs> really just makes a big difference for my psyche. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about, you know, young young artists um, and and... and people who are aspiring. So here's my question. Do you have any advice for aspiring directors of color on how to start, you know, where their internships should be, any kind of training, anything, social networking? What's, what's on the streets, Val, for the young aspiring director? I think that, um, that it's important that people understand that it's actually a craft. Mm. Mm -hmm. There, that there are tools to it especially for young directors of color, especially for young black directors, because black folks tend to believe that everything creative, we can do it innately. Uh -huh. I can sing. I don't need to get, I don't need to take voice lessons. I can sing. I could, you know, I can dance. I don't need to go to dancing, take dance class. I can dance. Um, the idea that we just do it innately is just false. You actually need to train. You need to understand the use of space. You need to know the relationship between all the different elements of production. You need to know how to lead a team, how to actually be a leader in the middle of a collaborative process. Um, so I feel like you need to study. It doesn't need to be in college. It doesn't need to be graduate school. But you need to study, and then you need to practice. You need to make things and learn from your mistakes. Does that, does that, like does that make sense? Yeah. I've been at this for 30 years and I feel like I've just been schooled. I'm like, yeah, I need to do that. It makes me crazy that everybody thinks that they are a director. I know. Well, I know. From a lot of directors. people direct. A lot of people direct, but not a lot of people are directors. Oh, another word. Another yep. word. You know, I, I tell people, like, oh, how did you learn how to direct? And I said, I learned how to direct by watching bad directors and deciding to do the opposite of what they did. That's my craft is creating a space where people feel like they can collaborate. People feel like they can, you know, uh, guide their own uh, career, guide their own, you know, impulses, but also uh, to embrace, hey, this is the framework. This is the this is what we're working under. Now you have the freedom to be. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't get that. I didn't get that. I was, you know. I didn't, I left college without, without any role other than a maid. Wow. The only roles I played in college were maids. 
Yeah, it was a, a revelation to me to learn that what my instincts were were in line with the theories. Yeah. That, you know, stage left is uh, less powerful than stage right. Mm. And that upstage is less powerful than downstage. Mm. So learning, learning the visual dynamics of line, plane, mass, the triangle, mm. all of those things yes. were, it was a revelation. I, I didn't know I was doing so much of it intuitively, but th th then I understood the principle of it and I could apply it when I wanted to, when I needed to, to clean things up and make things more clear. So uh, it's not that you, that it's not an innate, it's that you need to know what you're doing innately. Yeah. Well said. Well said. And I hope that you know that, you know, uh, the theory, the theory that I'm creating for this company is definitely influenced by what you're telling me. So, uh, you know, theory is coming from this understanding that you're laying down right now. And I appreciate that. I'm, I, I feel like a sponge. I'm so glad you're here, pal. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> and I'll, I'll actually, you know, Val is uh, one of our advisors as well. On she's on the our advisory board for intimacy uh, coordinators of color. So just like, <laughs> and I have to tell you, it's a big deal because with Hansberry, I don't actually get on a lot of boards because I'm I'm busy doing work to support that endeavor. Oh. So because I believe in the need for more of us who know more mm. about intimacy choreography, that's the reason I said yes. Yes. Lucky. Yes. Yay. Okay. So my final question is, you, you've answered every single thing um, that I wanted to talk about. And thank you so much. Uh, is there anything else you want us to know about your work or where you see yourself going in the future or what you want to do? Tell us. Tell us what I haven't asked you that you feel like you want to share. I'm, I'm in a really interesting phase right now. I mean, Corona has made me sit down to think about what's next. And, um, you know, I'm, I'll be 61 in September and, um, and I'm, I'm working with developing a clear understanding of what it is to be an elder. Mm. You know, you don't plan on being one, and then you look up, and suddenly you're like, "Oh, wait a second, I'm I'm an elder." <laughs> okay, <laughs> there, there, there are very there are very few people older than me in this room, uh, and right now I'm in so many Zoom meetings and gatherings, and it, that's the case that I am in that older cohort and trying to feel figure out how to be an elder and not just be older. Yeah. is uh is important you know like how to dispense wisdom in a way that's useful how to shut up and let people try their own thing and uh and also how to pick them up when they make a mistake you know and uh and how to learn from them like all of those things are it's a big priority right now and i would i would love to be winding down my academic career to write more and and yet Corona hit and said, no, baby, you better work a little longer. <laughs> that retirement, <laughs> you, you better, you better beef up that savings. <laughs> yeah. Count your chips. That's it. 
you know, so I'm, I'm, I'll be teaching for a little while longer, but I'm trying to figure out my elder, my elderhood and, uh, and how best to apply the, the emotional and intellectual resources that I have to build up and facilitate those coming after. Mm. Well, I just, just from the people who I've met that also know you, um, I just want to speak for them for a moment and say thank you for your wisdom and for your forward thinking and progressive mind uh, in the development of yourself and, and continuing to develop yourself and to stand into your elder position. And that's with a capital E. Um, we appreciate you and I so appreciate you. And um, not only on a personal level, but also on a professional level, I am so happy that uh, we're going to be in same spaces, even though they're (laughs) electronic digital spaces uh, for the foreseeable future. And um, I know I can just say thank you for coming on to uh, Intimacy Choreography in Conversation. Uh, this has been an interview with Val Curtis Newton Yay. and uh, with some amens from, from Hazel. Pop, pop, pop. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And um, awesome. Just once again, thank you, Val. And um, oh. yeah, we're the better world with you in it. That's for sure. Well, thank you. Thank you. Carly, do you want to, do you want to say goodbyes or want to say? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. This was just so incredible to listen to. Thank you, Val, so much for bringing your brilliance and wisdom. It was just uh, amazing to listen to. I was like a muted amen corner over here in my apartment. Um, and wow, I wish I had you as my teacher so much. <laughs> that what, just like what a, what a gift that you give to all your students and, and actors. And just uh, thank you for the gift of, of being on this podcast and, and sharing this with our listeners. My pleasure. My pleasure. If you, yes, you listening right now, have any questions about intimacy choreography, direction, consulting, or just the intimacy field in general, please send them to our email, which is the letters I-C-I-C dot Anne and Carly at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at the letters I see, I see, underscore, Anne and Carly, where we will be posting info about upcoming episodes and other intimacy-related tidbits. And as usual, we'd also like to pop, pop, pop our sound designer, editor, and otherwise extraordinary person, David Gonzalez. And pop, pop, pop to our wonderful producer, Hazel Lozano. Music by David Gonzalez. The podcast logo is by Zach Brown. Pop, pop.